As uh, we continue here in uh, chapter 2 of Philippians, I want to just say a word of thanks uh, to everyone for your prayers of comfort, your condolences uh, in the past of my grandmother. That has been very kind. My family has appreciated that. And um, I just want to tell you how much it means to be loved by a church. And that's all I need to say about that because I need to move on into this sermon. All right. Today we're going to be uh, looking at, um, I've entitled this, Children of God. And um, parenting is a funny thing. My grandmother played a really parental role in my life. And when I became a parent, I recognized just how funny parenting can be. It's challenging, uh, probably the most challenging thing you'll ever do, simultaneously most rewarding. I want you to imagine, remember, like going back. If you could look back now and, and imagine like walking into a hospital and they look at you and go, okay, we're going to give you something that is going to cry incessantly whenever it wants or needs anything. Um, it is going to challenge everything about you. Um, it, it only knows to take from you all the time immediately, and you may never sleep again. Here you go. Go get them, tiger. You got it. You know, and, and there's this, like, you look back, like, as a parent, and you go, I, I remember those times, remember the sleepless nights, but had I, had I never endured that, had I not seen that, and, and not seen the culmination of where my DNA met her DNA, and then come to the realization that this thing was created in the image of God before the foundation of the world, and there was a plan and intention, there was a calling on the, the child that I'm holding, and as I saw it develop, I saw its personality start to come out, I saw these gifts in, in each child, and I, I recognized that, and I go, wow, I, this is far more rewarding than I would have ever thought, and the only way you really see your kids' talents and gifts really come out is to push those gifts and to push those talents, right? So like sometimes I just push my kid down for the fun of it just to see what happens, <laughs> you know? Just see what happens because it's about like seeing how they get up and not, not just being there to protect every boo-boo and, and seal every scrape. It's just let them know I'm there and let's see what happens. And see, as Paul's turned the page on chapter one and moved into chapter two, there's a little bit, there's a bit of a parental tone in his letter here. Um, he has said, "Make my joy complete." He ends chapter one with, "To live or die doesn't matter. I'm good. To live is Christ. To die is gain." He turns. He says, "Make my joy complete." And today, as we get into verses twelve through eighteen, and I want you to hear, he's only taking this further. In the original letter, this was a letter. There were no page breaks, there were no chapters, no verses. He's expanding on the thought. And today I hope I do a service to Paul as we expand on the thought. So I'm going to ask you to stand as we read. Uh, for those who can, just these six verses and we'll come back and unpack them. Starting in verse 12, it says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Pause for a second. Isn't that the true test of parenting? That if your kids will do the things that you desire, the standard you've set, if they'll do that when you're not looking, when you're nowhere to be around. That's, that's kind of, Paul's saying that's the true standard. If I'm not there to double check and inspect, will you be who I know you can be? He goes on and says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you and will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Verse 14, do everything without grumbling or arguing, 
so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you firmly hold to the word of life. And I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. You may be seated. Father, I ask that as we look at this word, you would just allow it to come alive, let our hearts and minds be open to it. And Jesus, have your way, I pray. It's in your name I ask, amen. So he says, uh, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation in fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Our first point is this, that we're called and we're cultivated. We are called and cultivated. What Paul is explaining here is that there's a nature and a nurture thing going on right here. That what is in us is innate. Like God has placed in us, in this church, in you and I, because we were created in his image before the foundation of the world, something that he desired to see to come to fruition. We had a series, you can go back and look at it, it's in our archives, it's called Callings. We look through Ephesians 4 and we look at all those passages that connect in the New Testament to, to kind of define and describe why we in fact intend and the role we play as uh, a part of the body. In 1 Corinthians, Paul said it like this, not everyone can be a nose because where would the hearing be? Okay, so we all have a role to play. And he says, you have this innate gift. It's there, it's in you, but it has to be cultivated. It has to be nurtured. It has to be pushed, has to be pressed, has to be challenged so that it comes out. As a coach, one of the things that drove me crazy, and let me tell you what, if you've never had the fortune or the blessing of coaching four and five-year-old baseball, <laughs> let me encourage you. Sign up at your local Little League. Go, go coach those four- and five-year-olds in baseball where they're throwing a hard ball around at each other. They're so cute. <laughs> Pants barely fit. So cute. The beauty is they really are. It's fun to watch them start to develop. But the thing that I've noticed as growing up in sports culture and even as a coach, there are kids that step onto the play, playing field of competition, and they have just God-given talent. They are bigger, they are stronger, they are faster. They just have every tool that is purely DNA, like God-given. And it drives me crazy. Nothing affects me more or offends me more than to watch someone who has all that talent waste it. Have someone who has all that God-given talent, the size, the strength, just never be pushed, never be challenged. And quite honestly, not have the work ethic to challenge themselves, to cultivate that and see it reach full potential, maybe even exceed full potential. You know, sometimes we, we put bands on the logic of what that person can do. Sometimes we stop them. And here's the thing. If we gather in this place and we trust that in Christ, those who are in Christ have had his spirit placed within us and he indwells us now. And we have spiritual gifts that exist within us. Those are supernatural. So they exceed the, the length and the width of logic. Hello? Sometimes things just blow our minds and exceed what we thought was possible. Some, some things push beyond the boundary of what makes sense to us. And so, like, 
I was, I was studying and watching um, uh, ESPN one day, and they were listing their top 100 athletes. There was a segment they did. Top 100 athletes in the 20th century, and then top, uh, t- uh, top end also covered that same list. Michael Jordan was at the top, of course. Expect that, number one. Uh, 100 athletes in the past 20 years. But number 35 was a horse. I was like, that's not fair. Like, it was a horse. It was a horse. Secretariat was number 35 on top 100 athletes on ESPN's list of the 20th century. And I saw the movie, and the, the most powerful, the most epic part of that movie is that last scene. And, but, I, but, you know, when you're watching a movie, how many of you have a tendency to go, okay, how much of this is drama, like dramatic, like we just built this thing up? You know what I'm saying? How much of this is actually real? So I went back and I wanted to see that final race at Belmont Stakes if Secretariat could actually pull off this dramatic win, get the Triple Crown at, at, the, at the distance that it portrayed in the movie that he did it. In the movie, it's portrayed that he wins this race by 25 some 30 lengths, just dusts the field. And I was like, is that real? You know? And so, I, I mean, it was based on true story, so I'm assuming it was, but the movie, this race happened four years before I was even born, so I had to go back and find it and look. And so I have the footage. I want to show you this original footage. Now, as they come out the gate, you need to understand the strategy of horse racing. Some horses are built for speed, some for distance. You never until Secretariat made one horse that had both. And his strategy in this race in the, to win the Triple Crown was to come out the gate and to go slow so that he could build strength and win in the end. He was a distance runner. But Sham, his formidable foe, you see them starting to pull away right here. Sham was the most likely competitor in this challenge. Sham had a strategy to push Secretary as fast as he could out the gate because he was hoping he could make that, race, that horse end like literally in. And so what happens is they push out the gate at such a fast pace that people in the stands in the movie, you hear them saying, this is, this is going to be a travesty. There's no way. No, no horse can take this. No one can run at this pace. He's going too fast. He's going to die. We're going to see his heart burst on this track. There's nothing that can happen until his owner, Ronnie, Ronnie is his um, jockey. His owner, Penny Shinnery, sees it happening and knows this horse better than anyone else, and looks and watches, and you hear in the movie her yell out, let him run, Ronnie, let him run. And as soon as that is said, it's like, it's like the baby horse heard mama say that, because he starts to spread the length, and he doesn't slow up. He's not built like this, they thought, and he starts to pace the field by 20 and some 25, some 30 lengths. And you see him pull away. It was one, it was, this is the stuff of legend. This was such a dramatic and dynamic win that it rated him number 35 on top 100 athletes of the 20th century by ESPN and top end. They say, now this I cannot prove, but folklore, you know, when you're building up an emotional point, you got to use it, right? They say that when they did his autopsy, this horse had a heart twice the size of any other horse. And, there, you know, folklore, can't prove it. But there was something in him that no one else had. And 
the only, only the one, only the parent knew what this horse could do and knew what he could be pushed to and knew the limits that he could go to more so than anyone else. Logic said it cannot happen. But then, then we missed out on some dynamic feat. I want to encourage you to recognize something. When we, when we restrain for good because of logic, we miss out on the great. Because of logic, when we restrain for solely good and we do things based on status quo and what makes sense to us and what adds up, we miss out on the great. Mama knew something different existed in this horse. Something was there. And we just need to let him run. If we can't stop him from coming out the gate as fast as he did, and he's going to potentially burst his heart on this track, guess what? Mama didn't say slow up. She said hit it. Push him. Do not slow up. Do not slow down because there's something in here that exists that we didn't put in him. But he can do something that exceeds what we understand and what we know. And I believe that if we just allow him to do what he is made to do, if he just goes, we're going to see supernatural results. It's going to be the stuff of legend. You see, Paul wrote it like this, and I like the way the NLT says it. It says, continue to work out your salvation in fear and trembling. But the NLT says it like this. I think they've interpreted it for us, and it says better. It says, work hard to show the results of your salvation. Can I bring that up? Do I have that? Work hard. Maybe I don't. All right. Work hard to show the results of your salvation. What he's saying here is this. Work out your fear, your salvation in fear and trembling is not to prove, and it's not to earn anything, okay? It's proof of salvation exists. What is in there has been nurtured and it's coming out. There's fruit of it that exists. So many times I witness churches who are weak and dying, and I witness Christians who feel defeated. It's because we continue to try to approach God and approach life for victory instead of from victory, we will gather and we'll sing songs like death was arrested in a moment, but we live our lives as if death wasn't arrested. You see, we need to approach life from victory, not for victory. We're not trying to earn something. Jesus on the cross, the Father loved us so much that he placed our unrighteousness on him and took Jesus' righteousness and placed it on us. And the, the grave was defeated at the resurrection. So we don't approach life for victory it's from a place of victory so when Paul writes I was pressed I was pushed but not crushed I was struck down but not destroyed what he was saying was I was pushed to the point where the best stuff came out of me like I had an endurance I had a strength I didn't even know existed if you read through his monologue of what he went through and I'm just going to do it for you from the message I love the way this one expounds it this is one verse of scripture but the message takes it to a level that gives us commentary, because it's a paraphrase, to explain what Paul is saying. He says, listen, I've worked much harder, been jailed more often, beaten up more times than I can count. I've been at death's door time after time. I've been flogged five times to the Jews 
uh, to the length of 39 lashes, 39 lashes beaten by the Romans' rods three times, pummeled with rocks once, nearly stoned to death. I've been shipwrecked three times, immersed in the open sea for night and day, in hard traveling year in and year out. I have had ford rivers, fend off robbers, struggled with friends, struggled with foes. I've been at risk in the city. I'm at risk in the country, endangered by desert sun and sea storm, betrayed by those I thought were brothers. I've known drudgery. I've known hard labor, many a long and lonely night without sleep, many a missed meal, blasted by the cold, naked to the weather, bitten by a viper. I mean, the list goes on. It's like Paul endured some stuff for the sake of the gospel. And here's what's amazing. What was in him innately by God, we didn't see till all of this happened and it had been cultivated to really come out. We knew that he exceeded other people. Why? He was a Jew of the Jews. But like when you go back and think of those who preceded him, even walked alongside him, think about Moses who stuttered, who'd become the leader of the Israelites and lead them out. How does someone who has a a fear of public speaking become that voice? I mean, of course he had assistance there, but how does he become that person that leads with such strength? How does Gideon, the least qualified, become the one who's going to valiantly, as a man of valor, lead 300 into certain death but be victorious over an army that's countless? How does Peter the fisherman, who would deny Jesus three times at the cross, become the one who burst the New Testament church? And how does Paul, a murderer, Enslaving Christians become the most dynamic of all authors of the New Testament and the one who writes this letter here, enduring all that we just witnessed, that we just read about. It's because something was in them that needed to be challenged and cultivated, but it could come out, that could come to fruition. You see, um, we don't see the best of people come out when we constantly try to evade danger. We constantly try to evade struggle. In fact, those athletes that go on and exceed anything that we thought logically capable for them are those who are disciplined. You know, in the first century, there was a rule. We had this word, okay? In John 15, it says that Jesus was the vine, we are the branches. The father, the vine dresser, and the, the vine dresser prunes those he loves. He cuts back so that what? They produce more fruit. How many of you like pruning? Ever been pruned before? Well, here's the thing. It, alongside, if you parallel that text and that truth with what the first century called rule of life, they called the spiritual disciplines rule of life. What that means is this. If the vine is the life source to all those branches that are going to produce fruit, then the rule of life is the trellis that allows that vine to grow along to reach the branches they most expand. Here's the, here's the spiritual disciplines. Again, I'm going to just list a few. We did a series on this this time last year. Go back to the archive. You can check it out. But they are scripture meditation, silence and solitude, Sabbath, slowing down, simple living, and sacrifice. We have to be able to indoctrinate these things into our life as we walk with Jesus because as your life gets challenged, because it will, it is a certainty. He said, if you align yourself with me, the world will hate you in John 15 because it hated me first. As you are challenged, as you are pushed, if you are not disciplined to, to a point where you can exceed supernaturally that which boundary by logic is set up, 
You exceed that. If you don't discipline yourself to prepare yourself for that, you may just crumble. God God did not defeat the grave in his son Jesus for you or I and place his spirit within us that we would just crumble. We were meant to inspire. We were meant to challenge. We were meant to lift up. And the only way that we trust him to that level and discipline ourselves to that level is if we have the end in mind before we ever set foot on the playing field. How many of us recognize what Paul was writing when he says to live as Christ, to die as gain, is that he had the end in mind. He said, I would rather one day here in chains than an entire lifetime of what I had before, the fame, fortune, fear. How does that happen? Well, because he had an end in mind. He saw the end as his reward, not this life. He saw this as passing, as fleeting. In fact, uh, Jesus writes it like this in Matthew 25. I'm just going to read it for uh, a few minutes. It says that he, in expre- I'm just going to explain it, and then I'll, I'll show you a couple of verses. He, in the parable to the talent, says he gave five, two, and one. And what happens is in, in giving away talents, the two, that ha- the two that go before the one, the example, they have five talents, they go invest those talents, they press those, they push them, they take risk, and they double their investment. The one has two, comes back with four. They double their investment. Here's what Jesus, it says that the landowner says to those who gave the talents. He says this, well done, my good and faithful servant. The very words that we expect to hear is we meet Jesus in glory. Well done, my good and faithful servant. However, the one that was handed one talent is the only one that day that was rebuked. Why? Because he took that talent and he buried it. It says... The man who had received, verse 24 of Matthew 25, the one talent came and said, Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you've not scattered seeds. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here it is, that which belongs to you. I, I knew that you were harsh and I knew that this world's tough and they'd probably come and try to steal it. So I'm just going to, here it is. How many of you hear the excuses in that? Like, here's my logic behind why I did what I did, and that should be acceptable. Like, that's okay, right? Like, you're kind of tough. They're, the world's kind of mean. That's why I did this. And here's what the Lord says. The man, I'm sorry. And the master replied in verse 26, you wicked, listen, you wicked and lazy servant. You knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered the seed, well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would receive back that deposit with interest. Take the, talent, take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more and he will have abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then Jesus goes on to explain what it will look like on judgment day where you'll have the separation of the goats and the sheep. And he likens setting that whole judgment day picture up the wicked and lazy servant amongst the goats. Listen, I know how many of you like me want to seek the path of least resistance every time. If it's hard, not for me. It's free, it's me, right? Easiest way. 
but we don't see the best. And here's the thing. There's a biblical principle here that we got to recognize. If we look with the end in mind and we recognize that's our reward, this is fleeting. And you can do because of the spirit that dwells within you more than you think logically, more than you feel your mental capacity makes sense or understands to you. You can be pushed and you will not be crushed. You can be pushed and pressed and you will not be defeated. But we only do that if we have that end in mind and we recognize what we're investing in. What are you investing in? Are you, in fact, wasting the very talent God has put in you? Because you keep evading challenge. Keep sidestepping those things that are difficult. Are you wasting the talent he's put in you? And, and how does this dictate the way it practically comes out in our lives? Does it make us impatient? Or when we're challenged, are we patient? How many of you know God doesn't just give you a download of patience? <laughs> right? Like you're in traffic, Lebanon Pike, driving home. He doesn't just go, Whew. you know. He's going to give you opportunity to be patient, opportunity to exercise patience. This is when you need to preach to yourself, right? The truth of God. Like, because in patience, your natural logic, all that makes sense, going to come out. And people around you be number one. Moving on. How unloving or loving are you? Let me ask you this. How unloving or loving do others perceive you to be? What would others say of you? What would your coworkers, what school workers say? What would they say if we talked to them? How many of them would be confused that you were here on Sunday morning and you actually will spend time this week in a life group? Because what they witness is something altogether different. They may, maybe they understood you came to church, but they're confused by it. Doesn't make sense because the things that you're gathering to talk about aren't evident in your exercising. Because when you're pressed, when you're pushed, flesh comes out. All the logic comes out. All the constraints come out. Not the supernatural stuff of legend. The stuff that points to him. The supernatural stuff that points to him beyond yourself. Second point, content children inspire confidence. Content children inspire confidence. He goes on, he says, do everything without grumbling or arguing. <laughs> so that you may become blameless, pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. As you hold firmly to the word of life, and then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. One manifestation of the salvation is evident in us. It's proving ground. It comes out. Is our lack of complaining. All right. Not going to show a raise of hands. We're going to do an internal evaluation. How many of you have a tendency to complain? I can, let me, let me be, I'll just confess to you. I have a PhD in complaining. Like, don't have to be taught this. I'm good at it. See a lot of the broken in life. And I'm more than happy to tell you about it. Too often, I see what's wrong, and I let others know, hey, that's wrong. And here's what I've learned. It shows a lack of contentment. This is where God is challenging me. Uh, let, me let me put it this way. The parental tone. How many of you have ever taken that long annual trip with your kids? 
Okay, how many of you like you get in the van? Maybe it's that year where you're going to decide to do the like the trip of a lifetime, like the Disney thing. You've invested, spent time, took off work, invested hundreds, thousands, planned, got the van packed up, everyone got it clean, detailed, ready to go. You've got everyone's favorite snacks. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be great. You got their favorite movie, maybe video games today, whatever. I, I know. And you make that journey of tens of hours to the happiest place on earth. And you, you don't make it an hour before, he's touching me <laughs> from the back. He hates me. I hate him. He won't let me watch my movie. You know what I'm saying? Like, isn't that just glorious? <laughs> don't you in the driver's seat go, oh, God, I'm so glad I spent thousands on this and took time off. <laughs> this is amazing. I love that we are headed to the happiest place on earth. Right? So there's this like lack of gratitude spewing itself from the back of the van after you've set this up. You've planned this for the pleasure of your own children. Do you hear me? He has planned this for the pleasure of his own children. And our lack of gratitude shows our lack of contentment. And it really shows that we trust that the king isn't in fact good. Because if he was good... Well, then he'd, be, you know, he'd bend to my every whim. He'd do exactly what I want. He would do what I desire. If he was really good, then he wouldn't let this, all of this happen to me or us. And he would, and listen, he'd be way more impressed with the most loyal and impressive of all his subjects. <laughs> right? The complaining shows a lack of contentment and it shows a lack of trust in the sovereignty and the plan of God. And that it's actually about Him and His goodwill and His action, not yours, not you, not about us. He must come to my defense, do my bidding, tends to be our response. I'm going to give you my last point here. Paul says that while we have a tendency to act that way and, and complain because we lack contentment, he says we're to strive for the opposite. Rather than taking because we feel entitled that we're going to get what we deserve, we're to give relentlessly, give relentlessly, be poured out like a servant or slave. Third point, continually emptied to the point of conclusion. Continually emptied into conclusion. Verse 17 says, But even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Once you pour out a drink, you ever done this? <laughs> I mean, you can try, but not every drop's going back in there, right? It's not going back in there. You can do your best to soak it up and wring it out and put it back in, but it's not going back in. Once it's out, it's not coming back. You can even strive to place it into another vessel and then back in. It just is not the same. And what he's saying is, let them run. Like, let them run. Let them be pushed so hard that the best stuff comes out and it can't get back in. Let's see what's actually inside there. Let's get pressed to the point where the best stuff comes out. If this guy's got a heart twice the size of everything else, let's see it. 
And that's not going to come by making it a bed of roses. That's not going to come by walking, singing hand in hand on the yellow book road over the rainbow. It's not going to happen. It's going to happen as you and I are pressed and pushed. It's going to be in those moments where we go, God, I don't see how this is possible. And Elijah looks at his servant who is terrified in 2 Kings 6. He goes, God, because he has a brother who sees, open his eyes to see what is actually happening. As Elijah and his servant pop out of the tent in that faithful story, they look and they see an army countless ready to take their lives. And then Elijah says, let him see. And Elijah's servant's eyes are immediately open to see an army of angels that is countless surrounding them. The army that is certain death for them is surrounded by an army of the angelic host. Hello? And how many of you are grateful that you have a friend that will just say, open your eyes when you are doing a little bit of the complain routine, when you are seeing it? He goes, no, be, be empty to the point of conclusion, like work to the point of exhaustion. Let him run. Like don't slow up. Don't stay pace. Don't do things in a logical fashion. Pour it all the way out. Let's see what's in there. So let's rejoice for salvation. Rejoice for your suffering. Now rejoice in your sacrifice. Like give everything you've got, the suffering that you may go through, the ridicule, the ability to continually be emptied out to the point of exhaustion are a blessing, Paul says. Now, I just read a list of what Paul went through, okay? I want to ask us, how would we feel? Now, it's, it's true that we're reading about stuff they went through in the first century we are likely to never face. Right? Amen. I mean, that was the start of the whole team to have some church. They didn't understand what this was. They didn't understand what was going on. We're not likely to face it. But how many of you think you might second guess saying to Paul if you were like before him and he's like, how's things going? You're like, oh, cable's out. You know? You might second guess letting that come out of your mouth based on who you're talking to. You know? Like, oh, mower broke. You know? Paul's looking at this like, like this is a blessing for you to be pressed and pushed, for your life to be pushed to the point where everyone else said that can't go. That's a blessing. You might be saying to yourself, what, Paul, that's crazy. I'm trying to get on a beach somewhere. All right. He goes, no, no, no. The real blessing is the fact that you're going to be on the beach for eternity. Right now, this is short-lived. This is, this, this is short-lived. This is the blessing that you can show and reveal to those who are dying in a world that is broken and in sin, enslaved to it, that they have hope that there's something better that exceeds the beach for a week. All eternity, what are you investing in? The suffering, the sacrifice, this is the proof. Listen to this, this is the best part. Well, Paul's actually telling his children right here, his spiritual children, they birthed this church. He goes, the suffering's proof you're on his team. Hello? He's saying the suffering is proof you're on his team. Enjoy it. Rejoice in it. He loved you enough and saw big shoulders enough. He did enough in you to say that you could suffer. So he's going to let it happen because it's proof you're on his team. If they hate you, they hated me first. 
Servant's not better than his master. You're going to go through some stuff because I love you. And there's some stuff in there that I've got to let press and juggle and discipline and wrestle so that, that it can be cultivated and come out and inspire everyone around you by your lack of complaining and your evidence of contentment. I have spiritual supernatural fruit that's going to come forth from your life, patient when you shouldn't be, long-suffering when you shouldn't be, kind and loving when you should not be, joy when there is no joy to be found. You're going to be able to, by this expression, make a way when people feel there's no other way. Why? Because I made a way when you had none. And you're mine. And this is proof you're on my team. In conclusion, this is what it means to be a child of God. We're no longer children of wrath, just entitled, wah, fighting for our way, expecting someone to come to our beck and call. But would, listen, would our daily practices communicate that to those around us or would it confuse them daily? Are you walking worthy of the title, not perfect, worthy of, in the manner of the gospel of Jesus, not perfect, but in fact, so, walking worthy of the title child of God, not child of wrath. Would the world recognize us as children of God? Because, listen, we imitate our parents. We imitate our parent. Children, man, I can tell when I walk through a school who belongs to who. Will you ever watch, you ever watch Luke Matthews walk? You ever watch Luke Matthews walk from the back? There's no denying who he belongs to. He imitates his dad and doesn't even try. The reality is that's what happens. The world should look at us and see us imitate our dad. They should see us imitate our father because of the resolve that's in us. And that's what Paul is trying to bring out of his spiritual children here. Today, can you take it? If you desire to be a drink offering, continually poured out, then this morning, there is a table here that we call the Lord's table, the communion table, where he said, if you come to this table, do so in remembrance of me. And like, like him, because he was willing to be poured out, you come to the table today and say, man, God, I just want to be like you. Father, I want to be like you. I want to be known as your son. I want to look like you and have your traits. So if I need to be poured out, let me be poured out continually like you were poured out so that I could even have life. Let me do this in remembrance of what you did for me. If you're here and you go, I desire to be content and I am not. I complain as long as the day exists. I am discontented and I continually let that come forth from my heart, my mind, and my mouth. And people know it. That's what everyone else sees. There's an altar that is open. And if you need to repent of that, I encourage you to not waste another minute Come, there are prayer partners that will be on the side. I want you to go to someone and say, will you just pray for me because I desire to imitate my father. And if you've been living as very, if you've not been living as very loving, and today, like this cross exists right here because you have been given like responsibility over the people that are in your life. But you walk around not imitating your father because you're not very loving. In fact, you're kind of the opposite. You complain. You're not content. But yet you've been 
held responsible by the Father, like the watchman passage of Ezekiel, held by the Father, the blood of their life on your hands. You've not been walking that way. Will you come today and put their name on the cross because they need hope? They are being, they're drowning in a world of sin and they're taken down as slaves in a broken world. And you have opportunity to change that right now. As you repent and say, I want to be loving, put their name on the cross. Will my church pray for me as I seek to walk worthy, not perfect, but worthy of the gospel before them, that they might have hope. I want to be known as a child of God in their life, not a child of wrath. So the Father, this morning, however we need to respond, I pray that you would find your, your children faithful to do it. However you move on our hearts right now, Jesus, I pray that we would remember that this response time is not about us. This time as the band comes back and sings over us is not about us. This is about you. This is a time where we respond because you've moved in our heart and you find your children obedient to do exactly as you say. And if there be people here today who are not your children, don't know you, but desire because of what they sense you doing right now in their heart and mind, may they know that I am here, Scott is here, there are prayer partners here. Today could be the day of salvation. Jesus, have your way with us right now. May we not be scared, intimidated to do exactly as you ask us in Jesus' name.